You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Our twin boys are now 12 years old and participating in the family deer hunt for the first time this fall. And so last month, I had the great privilege to take them, along with a couple of their friends, to the firearms training class in the basement of the VFW in Hopkins. Rich experience for an urban dweller. It's not worth driving home and going back out there during the class. I was going to set up in the back with my laptop, try to do some work. In fact, I had already started on this sermon. That's a great thing about team preaching. I started on the sermon. I had a Leviticus commentary with me. Now, the guest speaker that night in the firearm safety class was a DNR conservation officer. And he's talking about the difference between preservation, where you just leave a habitat and don't touch it, and conservation, where humans wisely intervene to help the habitat flourish. And at one point, I look up on the screen, and he's talking about laws against wanton waste. Wanton waste. A person may not wantonly waste or destroy a usable part of a protected wild animal. Strangely enough, I had my Leviticus commentary out. And I was reading about chapter 22, verse 28. Look at 22, 28. You shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. And this is what I read in the commentary. More than mere sentimentality seems to underlie this law, it is in conformity with other laws as that forbidding men to take a bird and its eggs, Deuteronomy 22, or to cook a kid in its mother's milk, that's three times, we've already seen them twice in Exodus, or wantonly destroy trees, Deuteronomy 20, Every Israelite was expected to do his part in conservation by avoiding wanton destruction of the God-given creation. And there I was, planning ahead for this sermon, assuming that Leviticus would be mostly obscure for modern life. And in the basement of the VFW in Hopkins, A conservation officer is addressing one of our topics this morning in Leviticus 21 and 22. I mentioned this surprising encounter because some truths in Leviticus do pop off the page for us today as readers. It's not all obscure. Some truths seem to come straight to us as we read them. And when this happens, there's a certain danger attached to that. The danger would be that we read it straight to ourselves and not press to do the work to see how God's unfolding plan is preparing the way for and developing categories for and creating longings for Christ to help us know our own deep, multidimensional needs that are designed to bring us to Jesus. That's one danger. But on the other hand, Many truths in Leviticus are more obscure and distant. And maybe this is mainly your experience of Leviticus so far this fall. And then, 
our danger can be to hold those truths, to hold Leviticus at arm's length and not work to bring it home to ourselves through Christ. So for instance, if chapter 22, verse 28 popped with surprising relevancy in a a firearm safety class, look at chapter 21, verse 9. This is not close to modern sentiments or experience. 21.9, the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, the priest. She shall be burned with fire. We'll come back to that. The Apostle Paul's great doxology at the end of his greatest letter gets at this reality of God both making himself known to us in the Old Testament while also keeping certain truths mysterious until the coming of Christ. He both makes himself known and he keeps certain things secret to be made known at the coming of Christ. So this is Romans 16, verses 25 to 27. I'll read this for you. You don't need to go there. You can stay there in Leviticus 21. Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. There's the gospel that we know. And the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, that is obedience from the heart, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. So, Paul says that the gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, on the one hand, is according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret for long ages in the past kept secret in the time of Moses and Leviticus and on the other hand made known to all nations through the prophetic writings that is through the Old Testament so as Christians as we read the Old Testament including Leviticus we find both promises that will be fulfilled in Christ, and we come across mysteries that will be revealed in the coming of Christ and in his new covenant. So let's approach Leviticus 21 and 22 this morning with those categories in mind. Promises to be revealed, mysteries that will be revealed. Promises fulfilled, mysteries revealed. So what in these chapters, what are these chapters making known about our God and about our salvation on the one hand? And what is here mysterious or kept secret to the first readers, but now made known to us in Jesus? But first, I want to give you a quick overview of the chapters. If we're going to pick at some of the biggest parts and themes, I want you to know the flow, the structure, the outline of these chapters. Let's do that quick. Have it before you. Have your finger in it. We'll go through it fast. We saw last week 
the chapters 18 to 20 address the holiness of the whole congregation, of all the people. And now chapters 21 and 22 turn to the holiness of the priests. It's a very important distinction. Chapter 21 and 22 are not talking to and about all the people, but about the priests who have a particular role in the, in the Levitical system and about the sacrifices. So chapter 21, verses 1 to 8, we have stricter funeral and marriage requirements for priests compared with the rest of the people. Verses 1 to 6, priests may leave their duties to participate in death and burial rituals only for the members of their immediate household. Why? Verse 6, they shall be holy to their God. That is, they are distinct from the people. God's people are distinct from the nations, and the priests are holy, distinct from the entirety of the people. And one way that's demonstrated is that they don't do all the same death rituals and funerals that the rest of the people may. They're restricted to the mourning of the deaths of those in their own household. As for marriage, again, the standard is stricter than for the rest of the people. Why? Verse seven, the priest is holy to his God. You people shall sanctify him. Verses 10 to 15, give even stricter standards for the high priest. After all, there's only one of him. He can't just leave his duties to go to a funeral. Not even his own parents' funeral. Verses 10 to 12, he shall not participate in death rituals at all. Not even for mother or for father. As for marriage, verses 13 to 15, the high priest may not marry any, let's say, previously involved woman. Okay? Not even a widow. Priest could marry widows, high priest cannot. To prevent any uncertainties about the high priestly line. And who would be next high priest? Verses 16 to 23, prevent any priest with physical blemishes from active service. So no blind, no lame, no deformed, no diseased, no otherwise, otherwise disabled man is to go through the veil and serve at the altar as a priest. Chapter 22, verses one to nine, addresses what to do when priests become ritually unclean. They must abstain from active service and from eating the holy food that's distributed to the priests. Until they're clean, then they can go back to eating the holy food and serving on duty. Verses 10 to 16 answers, who may eat the priest's holy food? And the answer is only those in the priest's household. So it's not only for the priest himself, but for his household. And that's clearly defined. And they must be ritually clean to eat of the priest's food. And if someone eats of it by accident, and then he realizes it, then he must pay it back and add a fifth, says verse 14. Then the last major section, chapter 22, verses 17 to 25, as with blemished priests, so blemished sacrifices are not appropriate to this system as Yahweh is setting it up. And the list of deformities here for the sacrificial animals 
overlaps largely with the list of deformities for the priests in chapter 21, which is telling, as we'll see. We'll put those pieces together in a minute. And then already we mentioned verse 28, about wanton waste, conserving God's resources. Verses 26 to 30 is a more general section, not only for the priest, but it's especially for the priest in the sense that they're handling these sacrificial animals all the time. They're slitting throats. They're handling dead animals. And so whether God's people are exercising dominion over the creation or whether the priests are executing the activities of the cultists, God's people are to be respectful and restrained, not violent, not wanton, not flippant with the use of the resources God made. And then finally, verses 31 to 33 capture a summary of the whole of the two chapters and the underpinnings of the whole two chapters. So then, what might we highlight here as what God makes known to his people to prepare them for the coming of Christ? And then what mysteries are kept secret? in these two chapters. I've got two main things made known, and then we'll end with three brief, brief secrets kept, now revealed. Number one, made known, God is holy. Chapter 21, verse eight is programmatic for the whole of the two chapters. Flies as a banner over the whole two. And it's picked up again at the end of verse, at the end of chapter 22, which we'll see. So first look at 21.8, which is God's explanation for why he has stricter standards for the priest. This is important. Remember, not to all the people. This is about the priest. Why are God's standards stricter for the priests? Verse 8, you shall sanctify him, the priest, for he offers the bread of your God. He serves at the altar. He sacrifices the meat. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. The central teaching of the book of Leviticus, as we've seen over and over again, is that the Lord, the one true God, the one whose covenant name is Yahweh, he is holy. And that's the bedrock of these chapters. That's why we have them. Verse 8. I, the Lord, am holy. And then the refrain 12 times in this chapter, both these chapters, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. It's an abbreviated reprise of that verse eight about I, the Lord, am holy. Whenever you see I am the Lord, I am the Lord, it's about his holiness. But what does it mean that God is holy? When our children ask you that question, what does it mean that God's holy? What is his holiness? What Leviticus has made clear from the beginning is that God's holiness relates to his being separate or distinguished from his created world and the people in the world and even from his covenant people. As God, he is unique. He is utterly distinct from and above all else. He is holy. 
He is other. None is like him. But holiness doesn't just mean separate and unique. When the seraphim in Isaiah 6 cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're not just saying separate, separate, separate. It's a fact, he's separate, he's distinct. They're crying out in worship. He's other and better. He's unique and greater. He is unique and glorious. That's what's meant with holiness. Holiness is better. It's not just neutral. It's not lesser in comparison. It is better with any standard of comparison. What then does holiness mean for us? What does it mean for us to be holy? For God's people to be holy? I'm going to go to the, the chapter's bookend at the end, verse, chapter 22, verses 31 to 33. God says, so you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. A very important thing to note here. Just, just like verse eight, that verb sanctify, see there twice? It was twice there in verse eight. It's twice here again at the end of the chapter. It is being used in two different ways. You might say there's a bi-directional use of the word sanctify. Two different ways, depending on who's doing the sanctifying and who's being sanctified. So on the one hand, God's people sanctify him. God says that I may be sanctified among the people. The people are supposed to sanctify him. On the other hand, God sanctifies his people. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So sanctify has one meaning when God's people sanctify him, and it has another meaning when he sanctifies his people. It's like the word bless. When God blesses us, he gives us something we don't have. He makes provision from us. He is the all bounteous giver who provides for us when he blesses us. When we bless him, we don't give him anything he needs. We acknowledge that he is glorious. We give him worship or praise. So bless is a similar kind of verb there. It means something different when God blesses us versus our blessing him. So we sanctify. For the people to sanctify God means that we acknowledge his holiness and we treat him as holy. God's people don't make him holy. He is holy already, to put it mildly. Rather, his people acknowledge his holiness and they adore him for his holiness. They see his worth and delight in his worth. They set him apart 
as other and better in their minds, in their hearts, in their words, in their actions. They show the world he's other and better. And so in time, the surrounding world will be confronted in due time with the infinite value and worth of God as his people treat him as what he is, holy, infinitely and uniquely valuable and worthy. That's what it means for us to sanctify him. But what does it mean for God to sanctify us? That's number two. So number one, God is holy, made known to us here and in Leviticus. Number two, God makes his people holy. The main refrain of these two chapters, so if we did the bookends on number one, now we're getting to the main refrain and it comes six times at the end of each section. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And four more times. We saw it in 21 verse eight. It's there in verse 15, verse 23, chapter 22, verses 9, 16, 32. This is the main refrain. So the people sanctify God by treating him as the holy one who he really is. And he sanctifies his people by making them the holy ones that they are not. You got to mark that difference. Our sanctifying him acknowledges and adores who he is in himself. And his sanctifying us makes us what we are not in ourselves. And this sanctifying of his people happens in two ways. And they both are equally precious. And this is very relevant. One way is instantaneous. In a moment, he makes his people holy, instantaneous. Another way, we might say, is progressive. It's ongoing, instrumental, or incremental. Chapter 22, verse 32. God refers to his instantaneous sanctifying of his people. This is in the past when he says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. That was a one-time event. It happened in a moment. He delivered them. He made them his own. And he thus sanctified them. He made them other and better than the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Not that his people were deserving, but that they were his. By being his, they were declared to be holy. He sanctified them. And also, he sanctifies his people progressively in the present tense. That's what he says in this chapter over and over again. In the present, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. This is what Leviticus is doing. The tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the regulations, the holy God who is otherwise unapproachable is making a way to sanctify his sinful people that they might dwell near him and with him. So first, his people were not holy. They were common. And he took them as his own and made them holy. And now 
He draws near to them in this tabernacle arrangement that they might be increasingly holy and draw near to him. So he not only graciously makes them holy once by rescuing them, he also graciously makes them holy incrementally and continually that they might know him and enjoy him. Which, maybe you're already hearing it, corresponds to two important categories in salvation for us as Christians. We call them justification and sanctification. Those are the big words, but the concepts can be very simple. And we preached Galatians last spring and heard some of this with the accent on justification. In Leviticus, we get the accent on sanctification. In justification, our God rescues us by faith alone, apart from our action. This is like Exodus 14. People are backed up against the Red Sea, and God says through Moses, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. You only have to be silent. Nothing to do, you just watch with faith as God does it all. Then in sanctification, as in Leviticus, God makes us progressively holy and involves us in the process and our efforts and our actions. And don't miss this. These are both graces from God. Don't think that the one you do nothing is the only grace and the one where you get involved is not gracious. Justification by faith alone, apart from your doing, is grace. And God making us practically holy through faith, including our actions and efforts, is grace. This is double grace in the Christian life. The Christian life is a double grace. The Exodus is grace. And the tabernacle is grace. Instantaneous justification, progressive sanctification. It is grace to be delivered from Egypt while you stand there and just watch. And it is grace to be delivered from the sins of Egypt that cling to you through your own efforts and actions, empowered by grace. And remember, holiness is not just otherness. It's not just being other from the world. It is other and better. It's better in God and it's better in us. So brothers and sisters, let's get this right. Let's know together the joy of holiness. Holiness, rightly understood, is not a burden, but a glory and joy. Why would you want to settle for only half of his grace? Why would you want to settle for only half of Christ? Why would we want forgiveness of past sins without also rescue through holiness from the misery of ongoing sin? So, Cities Church, let's prize the double graces of justification and sanctification. But 
we haven't yet got to the main problem that is the underpinning of these two chapters. God is holy. He is unblemished. But his people are not. Not only, did, not only do they need to be made holy to dwell with him, but their moral blemishes called sin must be dealt with. Which moves us toward the secrets kept in these chapters. And in particular, the call for these, in these chapters for the priests and the sacrifices to be unblemished. This is right at the heart of how Leviticus works. How God set up this temporary system to create categories in our minds and to point forward in history and to anticipate the coming of his son and all the while show us the depths of our sin and our need. The reason that the priests on active duty must be without blemish is because God's people are blemished. And the reason the animals to be offered must be without blemish is because God's people are blemished. The sacrifices are substitutes for the people. Gracious and accommodating as the whole system is, it is fitting that physically unblemished animals stand in for God's morally blemished people. And that physically unblemished priests, who are morally blemished themselves, handle at the altar the unblemished sacrifices for God's blemished people. The reason for emphasizing this now, I mean, it, it relates to all of Leviticus, but the reason for emphasizing it here is the repeated phrase in chapter 22. I want you to see the phrase four times in chapter 22. Verse 19, it's about a burnt offering. It is, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish. Verse 20, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you, blemished worshiper. Verse 25, about any animals blemished by a foreigner, they will not be accepted for you in your place as your substitute. Verse 29, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. God's system requires unblemished priests and unblemished sacrifices because his people are blemished. And if God's blemished people are to dwell near him and with him and know him and enjoy him, then the penalty for their blemishes must be transferred somewhere else, not to a blemished animal but one that is unblemished, an unblemished substitute handled by an unblemished priest. But Leviticus could only point. And so Hebrews chapter nine, verse 14, I'm so excited to do Hebrews. We've already said this, 
We're going to do he- 2023. Here comes Hebrews. A fitting conclusion after, a fitting uh, sequel after Leviticus. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. If the blood of goats and bulls sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish? You get that? He's offering, he's the priest, and he's offering himself as a sacrifice, both without blemish. Offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works away from Eden, to serve the living God in Eden. God's own son come in human flesh, morally unblemished, without sin, made full atonement, both as priest and as sacrifice in a way that Leviticus could only anticipate. And so we have moved then from what's made known to the secrets kept. And we're going to conclude very briefly with three secrets kept in these chapters to the original readers, but revealed in the coming of Christ and his new covenant. Number one, about the priests, the priest. In Leviticus, the priests have a critical role to play as human instruments who accomplish the everyday work to keep the tabernacle and the sacrificial system continually operating. In the new covenant, we have one priest, Jesus, our great high priest. Nowhere in the New Testament are any local church leaders called priests. Not even the apostles. Instead, the lead or teaching office in the church is called variously Elder, overseer, and pastor. Three names for one office. And these pastor elders are not a separate class in the church. There's no instruction for the people in the church to sanctify your leaders. They are first and foremost sheep. In Christ, our formal leaders are not technically held to higher standards than the people. Sometimes we use that language, it's just a little sloppy. They are actually more strictly held to the same standards as every Christian. Self-control, sober-minded, respectable, not a drunkard, not greedy. This is Christianity. You don't have to do these things to become Christians, but it must be functional and real in the leaders because they're examples for the people and want the whole people to grow up into mature, basic, healthy Christianity. And they are not priests. No matter who's buried beneath the stage. Rather, all the church is a royal priesthood together showing our God's holiness to the world as a holiness that is both other and better. Number two, what about the disabled? What are we to say about the exclusion of the disabled in this chapter? And just look at it, verse 18, chapter 21, verse 18. No one who has a blemish shall draw near 
a man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease. First, remember that chapter 21, verse 18 is talking about priests on active duty at the altar. This is not about exclusion from God's people. It's not even about exclusion from the priestly tribe. And it doesn't even exclude them from eating the priestly food if they're in a priest household. Chapter 21, verse 22. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things. So you gotta remember the the symbolism of the system. The reason the priest serving at the altar and the sacrifice on the altar must be physically unblemished is as a substitute for God's blemished people. So in effect, these chapters say we are all blemished. That's what's communicated in priests and animals being unblemished. And then stand in awe of the contrast in the new covenant as Christ himself, our great high priest, priest comes among us and moved with compassion, touches lepers to cleanse them, heals the lame and crippled, restores sight to the blind, makes the mute to speak, the deaf to hear. And he says in Luke 14, 13, when you give a feast, say at the end of November, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. What about the prostitute? What about the whoring daughter of a priest? Chapter 21, verse nine, this is where we end. Look at verse nine. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, the priest, sanctified to the Lord, she shall be burned with fire. In other words, no funeral for father to leave his priestly service to attend. First of all, this is not to be harder on daughters than sons. Just in the previous chapter, chapter 20, verse 10, we saw that if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Equal. So do not read 21.9 as if the woman should be punished for fornication, but not the man. Rather, the context of chapter 21 is the priests. This is about the holiness of priests. She is the daughter of a priest. Whereas a son would presumably grow up and establish his own priestly household, a daughter who remained unmarried would stay in her father's household. And apparently that's the live threat 
a priest's daughter being drawn into prostitution in the surrounding culture and profaning her father, who is sanctified by God among the people. Whatever the details, Yahweh's punishments are never unjust. And yet, what mercy do we have in Christ? And what glory he demonstrates through his sanctifying grace. When Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 about Christ's care for his bride, he does so in striking Levitical terms. Has anybody gone back to Ephesians 5 in the last few months as we've been in Leviticus? Have you seen this in Ephesians 5? How Levitical it is when he talks to husbands and wives? It's Ephesians 5.25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Sacrificial language. Gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Just re-singing Leviticus in the New Testament. Apart from Christ, God may justly burn a whoring daughter of a priest with fire and do her no wrong. But in Christ, he washes his sinful bride with water that he might present her to himself in holiness without blemish. So as his bride, we come to this table to receive holy food as members of the household of the high priest, the great high priest. Bread to symbolize his body, broken, sacrificed for us, and the cup for his shed blood, spilled to give us life through his death. And get this, this table is not another sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice. It is a reminder and a means of God's ongoing grace for his sinful people that he is making holy and without blemish. So if you're here with us this morning and you would claim this Christ as your sanctifier, we would encourage you to eat with us. We'll bring the elements. If you do not know Jesus in this way and claim him in this way, just let the elements pass. We'll bring the bread, distribute that. It's all gluten-free. We'll retain and eat together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.